Oh, thank you, Dan, for picking that hymn. I've never sung that hymn before. That, that has some powerful words in it, doesn't it? Grace is yours and mercy and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, traditionally, this uh, celebration of Epiphany is known as Three Kings Days. But uh, there's nothing in the text that says that the wise men who came from the East are kings. But there are kings. I'd like to talk to you about it being Two Kings Day. On Christmas, most of us sing Glory to the Newborn King. Right. And we also heard from the very first sentence of our Gospel reading that there was a king in Judea at the time, King Herod. So I'd like to talk to you about King Jesus and King Herod. Now Herod the Great ruled over Judea, but he wasn't Jewish. He was an Idumean. He was a, a, a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. And he had been in power for 35 years. He was in a very adept politician. He was a brilliant architect and also understood physics and just incredible things. At the time, Israel itself did not have a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea. They did have a seaport, but it was frequently in the hands of somebody else and completely controlled by the Romans. So they said, well, what would it take for us to have a seaport? And they said, well, you need a breakwater. But unfortunately, there is no breakwater out there. And he said, well, let's put one there. And so he had his architects float huge blocks of stone and sink them into the Mediterranean Sea until they actually came to the surface of the sea, creating a safe harbor where there never was one before. How's that for clever? Not only that, he also, as you know, expanded the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. He expanded it till it was about twice the size that it had been before. And in matter of fact, one of the reasons that the people of Jerusalem didn't like him is because of the fact that in order to do that, he had two opportunities. It was landlocked, okay? Do you know about a church being landlocked? I think we do. You know, we've got plenty of parking, but if we wanted to build bigger, what would we be able to do? Well, if you're king, what you can do is annex as much property around you as you can. And that's what he did until he could no longer get away with it. And so then what he did was he actually expanded the temple by building out over thin air. And the way that he did that was by putting in a, a retaining wall next to the bluff that the temple was standing on and built it all the way up. Parts of that wall are still standing today. Just built the thing all the way up so that when you were coming into Jerusalem, you know that route that Jesus is going to take, coming over the Mount of Olives and coming in? From the bottom of that wall to the top of the temple was 200 feet of gleaming stone. And some of those stones, if you, I've never been to Israel, but I've seen plenty of pictures of things and such, and, and 
most of those stones were, well, one of them would fill the space between me and that stained glass window. Those are some big stones. No wonder they're still there. And not all of them made it. Some of them broke while they were trying to get them in place. And what are you going to do with a stone that big? So what they did is they stashed it inside the wall. Some of those broken stones are still there too. But he was always aware of the fact that he was not born to be king of the Jews. As a matter of fact, the way that he became the king is by making alliances with the Romans. And he was pretty adept at it because when one alliance would start to fall apart, all of a sudden he would go to the other guy and say, you know, I was always on your side. And it worked. So he was kept in power by Rome. But he wasn't really loved by the people. As a matter of fact, he sent out a, a directive which, by the grace of God, was not followed. But the directive was this. He said, when I die... The people will not mourn me. They'll rejoice. So I want to make sure that the people mourn. If not for me, then for the change that comes on Jerusalem. And he ordered during his lifetime, he ordered the leading families of Jerusalem to each have one person arrested and he gave an order that on the moment of his death they were all to be executed so that there would be weeping in Jerusalem even if it wasn't for him now as I said by the grace of God that one wasn't carried out but his ambitions were such that he <laughs> he ordered the death of three of his sons because they proved to be competent and smart and he figured it's only going to be a little bit of time before they want to take over for the old man and so the way to make sure that doesn't happen is to kill off all your male heirs one of his officials came to him and said you know your wife mariamne is plotting against you because you killed her children. And Herod was faced with a decision. Do I trust this official or do I trust my wife who has given me a family and who is the, the, the love of my heart? So he ordered the death of both of them. On a rumor. You can see why when Herod was troubled... All Jerusalem was troubled with him. Who's going to fall next? Herod did everything that he could to make sure that he would reign as long as he lived. And his plan was simple. It was simply to have others die so he could live. Doesn't that sound like the exact flip, the exact opposite of Jesus who came to die that others might live the one who was born to be the king of the Jews a little bit further in in our text here uh, a little further than our text we hear that Jesus, Joseph took his family down down to uh, Egypt and came back so that we would have the fulfillment of the 
of the uh, prophecy out of Egypt, I have called my son, and also that they settled in Nazareth, uh, a little backwater area way up by the Gentiles up there, so that they could he could fulfill the prophecy, which is not in the Bible, but the prophecy, he will be called a Nazarene. When he's there on the cross, what is the inscription that's put above his head? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was meant to be ironic. It was meant to be mocking. But you have the fact that he came and lived in an area supported by Joseph and, and Mary. <laughs> Herod has all, all an army at his command. He has the ear of Rome. He has the, uh, he has the, the palace that he lives in. And he's afraid of a baby? A baby who is born to be king of the Jews? How paranoid do you have to be? How foolish do you have to be to try to go up against someone whose coming was so propitious, so important that you could actually look up his address in the Bible? For 700 years before Jesus' coming, People had been hearing that there would be the Messiah born in Bethlehem. It didn't even take long for him to find that out. He just asked his wise men and they said, here's the one that you have to watch for. Here's where he's going to be born. It will be in the city of David. Now, it also means that he's going to be a descendant of the royal line of David, something that had not been even thought of ever since the people returned from exile. You should be. <laughs> I keep forgetting to turn that off. She broke into my flow here. Let's see. <laughs> Remember what the angels told the shepherds? That the coming of Jesus was some time to celebrate because... It was God's peace come to earth. Goodwill to all people. Well, Herod, the train wreck that he is, is exhibit A of the chaos, the warfare, the selfishness, the greed, the, the cynical nature of human sin. He thinks that he can simply stop someone who his own scribes have told him is very likely the Messiah of God, who is likely the Christ come to earth. He tries to kill God. And as preposterous as that sounds, Jesus' life is saved at that time simply because it is not yet time for him to die. Herod tries to preserve his own life by taking the lives of others. He's willing to sacrifice anyone to preserve himself. He's willing to command the deaths of children to safeguard his own way of life. Herod knows 
and accepts that as the cost of doing business. But his evil is far beyond that because he is attempting to kill God. And that's the ultimate sin, isn't it? To try to get rid of God. To get God out of your life so that you can go on with whatever it is that you want to continue to enjoy. And even though you notice that things keep falling short, you think, all I need is even more opportunity to do something which I know is wrong, but someday it's going to feel so right. In contrast to King Herod, there's baby Jesus, who according to his human nature has no might or power. He can't walk or talk or even feed himself at this point. His defenders and support staff seem to be made up of Joseph and Mother Mary but he is still born king of the Jews. And everything he does in this text is part of his work to save you. When we hear the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son, of course, that was talking about the Exodus. That was talking about how God called his people out of Egypt and called on them to be faithful and obedient there in the wilderness and not one of them was. Not even Moses himself could pull it off. They couldn't. So Jesus did. And when the prophecy is made that he will be a Nazarene, that that obscure little place up there that is rubbing shoulders with the Gentiles all of the time. It lets us know that the chosen of God, not only Christ himself, but all those who are called after his name, the chosen of God are called to live among those who are not yet saved. To be the the presence of God as the Holy Spirit dwells in them. To share by word and by action the love of God in Christ. And to do it in a world that is messy and sometimes dangerous. Beware of the sins of Herod. The same sin enslaves the world and seeks to enslave you. The slavery of sin leads us to reject God, to turn to other gods instead, and above all, the greatest false god you will ever struggle with, the god of your own ego, of your own pleasure. You'll be tempted to make a God of yourself, tempted to make all sorts of sacrifices to this God, be it on the altar of convenience or expediency or desire or rebellion or anger or whatever. The temptations vary. 
But there is always the temptation to defy God and ignore his word in order that we might do what we want to do to please and preserve ourselves. Even to being willing to sacrifice right and righteousness to get what we desire often before we know it often without even realizing that that's what we've been doing. But remember what the angel said to the shepherds, to you is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ is born in Bethlehem to be your Savior. All of Herod's wrath and soldiers couldn't stop the toddler Messiah. In the coming gospel lessons, you will hear Jesus live and speak and work to save you. And as Easter draws near, you will hear him as he goes to the cross to save you. The sin of Herod is always nearby, but Christ the King is as near to you as his word and sacrament. If he weren't mentioned in the Christmas story, Herod would be completely forgotten, no matter how great he wanted to be. But Christ walks beside you every day and longs to hear. The secrets of your heart longings of your soul. In his name. Amen.